0: This edition of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Signal Sciences. Signal Sciences' next-generation WAF and RASP technology is the only application security solution that works across any architecture. Fast and easy to implement, the solution protects more than 25,000 cloud-native, legacy, and serverless applications and over a trillion production requests every month. Organizations across all industries deploy Signal Sciences to protect their most important web applications, APIs, and microservices against the full spectrum of threats, from the OWASP top 10 to account takeovers, API misuse, and bad bots. Check them out at signalsciences.com. Hello, this is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 168.
1: What the attacker is trying to do is figure out, okay, if I pass certain values or maybe even certain commands, am I going to be able to get access to sensitive data um, or sensitive customer records?
0: As more and more businesses migrate legacy applications to the cloud while adopting a cloud-first strategy for new initiatives, web application security has moved from the periphery to the center of enterprise IT concerns. In our second segment, we're joined by Brendan Macarag of the firm Signal Sciences to talk about the expanding landscape of web application threats. But first, if you want a good measure of the growth in the web application space, you might look at Veracode's annual State of Software Security Report which has taken the measure of that company's application vulnerability scanning activity each year, more or less, for the last decade. The report covered a little more than 1,500 applications in its first year, In its 10th iteration, released this month, Veracode compiled data from scans of more than 85,000 applications. Despite the greater volume, however, you could be forgiven for confusing the 10th state of software security with the first. Most of the vulnerabilities encountered in application security scans are the same as a decade ago, and it seems that companies haven't made a whole lot of progress in addressing vulnerabilities in a more timely fashion. The result is that mountains of application security debt are piling up in Enterprises. In our first segment this week, we speak with Chris Ang, the chief research officer at Veracode. He talks about the latest state of software security report, why it is that companies still struggle to address application security and how application security debt accumulates and what organizations can do to get it off their books.
2: Uh, this is Chris Eng, Chief Research Officer at Veracode. I mean, we're a software security company, and we build all sorts of automated uh, scanning technologies to help our customers identify vulnerabilities in their applications, hopefully before hackers do. And we do it at scale, so there's a lot of automation here. We help customers build programs around that, and you know, go from very little scanning at all to scanning their entire inventory, prioritizing how they fix things and basically getting their applications to, to an overall better security state. I've been here with Vericode now since 2006, uh, which is very early days before we even officially launched the company. And I run the teams that are responsible for um, applied research, which um, is basically how we scan for the things that we do. So let's say we, we go and decide to um, scan a, a new language or something. It's my team that says, well, what are the mistakes that developers are going to make in that language what do those patterns look like and what should we tell our engines to, to look for what's what's indicative of those things that we want to detect and then i also run product security here so making sure our own products are safe for our customers uh, in that role you know we're actually a vera user and you know we're trying to solve a lot of the same problems that um, our customers are trying to solve, so sure. it's a good position to be in because then we kind of, you know, we eat our own dog food. We understand the challenges that our customers have, uh, as well as just kind of building a product in in isolation.
0: How have have you seen the sort of business case for what Verico does, and also the problems that kind of evolved during that? Time. I mean, back in 2006, we didn't talk so much about things like DevOps or or even Agile all that much. But uh, obviously now, those are pretty much the dominant um, methods for developing applications.
2: Yeah, it was a real different world back then. I mean, AppSec awareness was just kind of barely even there, right? If you think about it, people were doing kind of penetration testing, but by and large, AppSec awareness was just really, really not there. Uh, Like you mentioned, like Agile was. It may have just been starting. Uh, DevOps certainly wasn't around. And um, we're not a tool, we deliver our product through the cloud as a you know, SaaS service. And SaaS was barely around at the time. We're at a unique vantage point to kind of look at what's happening out there because of the fact that we're doing this as a cloud service, right? We can see everything that's going through, we can aggregate all the scan data and look at trends across industries and geographies. And you know, so 10 years ago, we had 1,500 applications in our volume one of this report, and, and today uh, we have 85,000 unique applications. So, you know, you can see that the awareness has grown, obviously the, the adoption of this type of activity, this tooling has grown. And, you know, we're spending less time today explaining and advocating for application security. We spend a lot more time talking with our customers about how to build an effective and mature AppSec program. So the conversation has changed quite a bit.
0: So let's dig into the 10th volume of state of software security, order of magnitude increase in the number of applications you guys are looking at. What should we understand about the security of those applications or how the um, security problems facing applications have evolved during that time?
2: Yeah, I'll give you kind of a a few data points on kind of what's, what's changed between year one and year 10. So I already mentioned kind of the size of the data set changed quite a bit. Um, we've also started to take a lot more robust approach of doing the analysis. So, you know, in volume one, it was literally a handful of us grabbing the data and, and, and you know, trying to trying to do the analysis. And, and today, you know, we start six months before the report's released. We grab 12 months worth of data. Then we engage with a data science firm called Scientia, and they help us do really rigorous data analysis um, and, and start to answer some of the questions that we want to answer, but maybe we wouldn't really know how to build those statistical models, you know, in house, and so we can answer a lot of a lot of interesting questions. When we look from volume one to volume ten, we find a lot of a lot of things that haven't changed as quickly as we would like or would have expected i'm not sure it depends on what your expectations were but fixed times have stayed kind of roughly the same so when we think about how long does it take for an an average um, flaw to get fixed in volume one it was 59 days on average and in volume 10 it's 59 days one that is interesting is that in volume one um, 66 percent of applications on their first scan had no high severity flaws And today, 80% have no high severity flaws on their first scan. So what that kind of tells us is that developers at least seem to be becoming a little bit more aware of the higher profile types of flaws, and they're getting a little bit better at avoiding some of those off the bat.
0: Okay. So even though we're not seeing tremendous change in overall in some of these metrics, there is evidence that good practice leads to better outcomes, right? Just reading through the report, that's one of the conclusions I came to when you talked about kind of frequency of security scans and, and how that contributed to faster fixed times.
2: The good news really is that a lot of flaws um, are fixed, like, eventually. So we look at, we break it down by, you know, 75% of our, our top criticality flaws do get fixed. It just takes a really long time to do that. And um, and so what, what we did is we tried to spend a lot of time looking at fixed behavior and, like, what are the different factors that drive fixed behavior in our customer base? Because, you know, if you don't fix and you just scan for stuff like what are you really doing right you're not really making a difference you're not you're not making anything better you're 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 just you know collecting this this big pile of of, of security findings and so it's really important
0: you might be checking a compliance checkbox too
2: that's true yeah you might be saying like i scanned you know good for me but um, <laughs> but <laughs> um actually driving down that pile of bugs is and, and how can we do that more effectively is what we really wanted to answer. So, and this is where the, the, the data science fund comes in because we said, all right, well, we want to look at how long does it take for, you know, you know typical flaw to get fixed and you know, how long does it take to get to, to various milestones? And so when you look at the report, you'll see a bunch of charts that have three dots on them. And like a, it's like a green dot, a blue dot and a pink dot. And what that says is that it, it shows you the number of days that it takes to get to, a twenty five percent closed mark, a fifty percent closed mark, and a seventy five percent closed. And then we'll we'll break that down based on you know, flaw severity or exploitability or you know various various different factors. And, and what we were trying to do there was is understand, okay, well, does one of these uh, factors or characteristics about a flaw drive the behavior that we want? So we looked at that, you know, for example, with severity. and we found that, yeah, very high severity flaws um, do get fixed faster than high severity flaws. But then also, medium severity flaws also get fixed faster than high severity, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And then all of these categories, all of the severities had a really long tail. So if they all, regardless of severity, you get to a 25% closed mark pretty quickly, right, in like under a month. And then the 50% mark is, you know, out there in uh, you know, a couple months, two to three months. And then to get to 75% closed, it's, it's 120, 200, you know, 250, you know, depending on the, the, the category. There's a very, you know, once you get to a midpoint, Everything else is kind of really slow. But what we wanted to see, what we thought we would, would see, like if you're a security person doing this, you would think about the severity of the flaw as well as the exposure to the business. And, but, you know, why are they f- spending so much time fixing, you know, medium and lows? before they get rid of all of the very highs. Like we should see a clustering of quick fix times for, for the high and very high severities and, and the, the mediums and lows should come after that, but, but it's just not what we see. And we, you know, we repeated that analysis with exploitability. Um, we repeated that with business criticality of the application. We looked at different flaw categories and we saw the same thing in every case. We saw there was always a quick start to the 25% closed mark, and then extremely long tails across the board. Like we never found like, oh, when this particular combination of factors happens, we see customers really treat those flaws with a sense of urgency. Like that's what we were kind of looking for. What we did find (laughs) interestingly was that younger flaws, so the ones that are discovered more recently, are more likely to be fixed than older flaws. So there's like a recency bias so developers are most likely to fix a flaw that was just found, regardless of all our other factors, right? Just that it was newer. There's a twenty percent chance that a flaw is going to get fixed within a month of being discovered. And then a 10% chance for the second mm. month. And then it just goes down from there. So like the longer, the older it is, the less likely <laughs> it is to get fixed. You know, so there's this recency bias and like it's, it's, it's nonsensical in, in a way yeah. because like, why would you spend the limited bandwidth that you have as a developer fixing something that's unimportant just because it was discovered today versus something important that was discovered a month ago. But, but that's what we found. That was the strongest predictor of something get, getting fixed in terms of pro- probability of get, getting fixed was that it was new. So you find out all sorts of interesting things about developers when, when, we, when we do this sort of stuff.
0: <laughs> You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This week's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Signal Sciences. Signal Sciences' next-generation WAF and RASP technology is the only application security solution that works across any architecture. Fast and easy to implement, the solution protects more than 25,000 cloud-native, legacy, and serverless applications and over a trillion production requests every month. Organizations across all industries deploy Signal Sciences to protect their most important web applications, APIs, and microservices against the full spectrum of threats, from the OWASP Top Ten to account takeovers, API misuse, and bad bots. Check them out at signalsciences.com. Some really interesting data in the report when you when you start digging into applications and and um, the types of flaws that you are commonly, commonly discovering. First of all, here again, between volume one and volume 10, actually very little change at the very top of the types of Application flaws that are most common: yeah. cryptographic issues and information leakage were uh, one and two in volume one, and two and one and in volume ten. But uh, overall, though, you, you do see some big changes, big decreases in, in things like buffer overflow, overflow errors, which are what most people think about when they think about application security flaws, and then big increases in things like uh, input validation uh, uh, flaws. Yeah, uh, talk talk. talk of, what are we seeing there? I guess. I think what you're
2: seeing when you compare flaw categories um, from Volume 1 to Volume 10 is, I mean, for things that go down, um, you hope that some of that is awareness. Uh, But I think, honestly, one of the biggest factors um, that, that influences that chart is just the prevalence of different languages. And so buffer overflows and buffer management errors and numeric errors, those are things that commonly crop up in native code, C and C++. And there's just a lot less of that than there was 10 years ago, um, or maybe there's the same amount of it and there's like a lot more of everything else. Um, but I think, you know, that, that mix has really affected what we're seeing there. Cross-site scripting is up, for example, from 33 to 47 percent. But there's a lot more web apps now um, that are being tested than, than there were 10 years ago. And so I think, yeah, I, I think that, I think that more than anything is, is affecting it because we're not seeing any categories completely go away. Um, um, so, you know, we haven't, we still haven't eradicated anything. We're, we're still, we're still waiting for our, our first, you know, a, as a, as an industry, right? Like the first, like we eradicated the, the, this thing and, and it's not happening anymore because we've, we've made it foolproof. I don't know that's it's going to happen, but, but it, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we see the, you see some of the, a lot of those numbers go up and, you know, I, I, well, a lot of what's happening there, um, when you look at the percent of applications that have that flaw is um, you know, like I was alluding to before, a lot of, a lot of what's found is just never, never fixed. And so uh, essentially you can think of it like teams are building up um, security debt in the same way that, that you can build up credit card debt, right? Like if you spend every month and you never make a payment, you have this huge bill that balloons over time. Same thing with security flaws, right? If you Mm-hmm. Just scan, scan, scan and scan, and you don't fix stuff mm-hmm. like that builds up over time. And um, similar yeah. to interest accruing on a credit card, flaws actually get more difficult to fix over time, right? Because uh, of course, right, the further it gets out of date, you th- you think about updating a library or something like every time you update, it right. breaks and you have to fix it. So it's more, it's more costly. Uh, to fix it the longer the longer you weigh uh, the longer away you are from the introduction and so we really think that this the security debt notion is a good way of, of thinking about that interest yeah, and, and how it gets paid down so you have tons of um,
0: flaws yeah. of a certain type that more or less just carry over and never get fixed in addition while they while well, numbers of new types of that flaw might be less they're still just being added on top of those old flaws
2: they' Yeah, exactly. And uh, we have a whole section in the report where we talk about security debt. We introduce that concept and then we break it down and and, and look at what are we seeing across that, um, across the applications in terms of are applications uh, paying down their debt or are they accumulating debt over time, right? Um,
0: this being America, usually... I'm guessing they just <laughs> <better> <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yes, it, it maybe refinance it. it at some point.
2: <laughs> right. Oh man, and what would a refinance look like in security debt? Yeah. So I mean, we find that uh, a lot more uh, applications are accruing debt than there are reducing it. So f- about half of all applications are are finding more stuff than they fix, and about a quarter of applications are fixing more than they found. So so okay. most are accumulating debt. And we have a number of kind of these iceberg type graphs in, in the report that kind of depict that where um, we, we kind of show um, on the on the top, above the horizontal line, like what's getting fixed each week or each month. And below the line, you know, in pink, we're showing like the debt, the stuff that they're trying to chip away at. And so over time, what you would like to see is that the big, the, the underneath the water, the pink um, security debt section, You'd like to see that decrease over time and get and, and eventually get to zero, and then hopefully you get to a point where you're steady state and you you're you're just you don't have you don't have debt and you're also not introducing new flaws. My
0: guess is, as with actual debt, it's hard to do that because you're do, again developing new applications, writing new code, and then also needing to go in and address the problems in your existing. Yeah, code.
2: I mean, you could certainly say stop everything. Let's pay down all the debt and no new features, right? You you could do yeah. that. That would be an extreme. Yeah. On the other end of the extreme, you have
0: no no um, no gifts for you, Christmas, that type of thing.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Like no. Yeah. No features. Um, you can imagine how well that goes <laughs> over with with any business, right? And uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, you know we have customers that that come to us and they say like maybe they're new to the the company or the program and they've they they come in and they've inherited all this all these security flaws that were there before their time right so they're like well this wasn't my fault like this wasn't this was here when i got here so i'm going to focus on uh not having developers introduce new stuff and like that's how i'm going to like i'm going to baseline Today, from from as day zero and going forward, I'm going to gauge my success or you know my metric based on did we introduce more? And so they're like, right. well, we could we'll just uh, we'll just you know not pay attention to the stuff in the past, which probably looks good on their on the, on their dashboard and their performance metric or whatever. But it's it's you know you can't just ignore the debt. And and then every other behavior pattern is is in between those two extremes, right? So the the good news like the good news in this is when we looked at what security debt looks like. And we try to answer the question of like, what factors reduce security debt? We found two that seem to be at least correlated with better outcomes. And this gets to the the whole DevOps thing, right? So DevOps is a lot of automation. It's not just automation. It's also culture and process. But um, from where I said, I can't measure your culture or your process, but I can measure your automation. So I can look at how often an application gets scanned, for example, right? So if it's being scanned like once, twice, three times a year, it's probably a manual thing, probably not DevOps. Whereas if it's getting scanned weekly or daily, and I I can see that it's being scanned through an API user, you know, any any number of factors here, I can probably assume that you're doing DevOps or something DevOps-like or something like super agile with very short, cycles or something and so what we did was we took this security debt visual right the iceberg um, diagram and then we broke that into different buckets of uh, of of scan frequency using scan frequency as a proxy essentially to answer the question of is this application doing devops and so we found that with daily um, or weekly scans the median time to remediate a flaw is three times faster than the ones that are scanning monthly or less. And when you look at the pictures of the charts, you see that there's there's a lot less security debt for the applications that are being scanned more frequently. So um, the propensity to accumulate debt is is much less when applications undergo frequent testing. So that was cool. That was nice to find. And the other thing we looked at was scan cadence. And so we think of that like how regularly does, it, does an application get, get scanned, right? So does it is it like on a timer, like every day at, you know, at the same time or every week at the same time? Or do you see kind of a more bursty behavior? Like mm-hmm. suddenly there's a flurry of activity in April and then like nothing in May, June, July, August, and then a flurry of activity in September, right? Which could correspond to like a security sprint type thing. It could correspond to like, hey, an audit is coming up or you know whatever the case is, right? And we found that the ones that are are and On a steady basis are a lot better at reducing security debt and the ones that were bursty like the ones that i just described like the flurry of activity followed by like nothing security debt that those apps accumulate is tremendous like the shape of the curve um, just completely it, it drops off right the the amount of debt just it accumulates, and so it, it seems like bursty. In theory, you get after it, you you knock it all out, but but then when you're do while you're doing nothing, a lot's just going to keep piling up. You, like that's not a good way to to go after it, and so it kind of makes sense. Um, but it's also nice just to have that data behind it.
0: So maybe an argument for just um, integrating security scanning and and by extension, you know remediation more into just the flow of uh, development week in week out than to do like the sprint based approach, try and deal with them once. The
2: right. It seems like, you know, building the habits and the automation around yeah. it um, is, is better. And um, and again, like with the bursty sort of testing, if you're now you're, you're, you're going to start your security sprint and you're going to start finding things that were that were introduced maybe six months earlier and so You have that increased cost and you've got to change context back and find the developer that understands understands this this you know all these all these complications right whereas if you just kind of build it in and like in an ideal world developers would just start treating security bugs as uh, a subset of quality right um so you'd have an you know an engineering manager is gonna require feature regressions or other bugs to be fixed before accepting code um they should treat security bugs the same way they're, they're not really doing that today but mm-hmm. if it gets incorporated right as part of the, the, just the, the regular process of building software I think there's going to be a better chance that uh, companies will will not build up so much debt and they'll start to drive down their median um, time to repair so we're going to keep an eye on, on on all of these different factors but um, those were those are interesting to kind of see that, that the, the, the impact on dev, of like DevOps style activities on fixed behavior
0: okay final question I mean for development organizations out there Chris having just put together the the latest state state of software security what should be their their top takeaways from the report in terms of monitoring their own practices and obviously improving the overall security of their application development uh, process
2: yeah well I mean in addition to kind of using the automation and and, and building steady scanning um, and, and steady fixing into the process I think the other real takeaway is around prioritization um, and prioritizing better because we know that developers don't Mm -hmm. have unlimited time to fix security bugs, right? They may get a certain amount of their time carved out to do that. And then the rest is going to go to feature work and maintenance and all that. So they should spend the time that they have for security bugs fixing the most important things. And that's just not what they're doing today, right? They're focusing on the most recent findings instead of the findings that present the most risk to the business. And we don't know why that is, but we know that it's counterintuitive and it's suboptimal and it could be a lot better. So I think there's an opportunity there for developers to, to, to lean a little bit on their security teams to help them understand what to prioritize or to just say like, Work work on the more severe things first. Um, that would be a, an easy starting point. But you know where we are today, prioritizing based on recency is is not the way to go. So we all know they're not going to get unlimited time to fix security stuff. So let's let's use the time a little bit better. And and I think that's that's something they can kind of keep in the, hmm. in the back of their minds.
0: Good insights and good thoughts. Saying Vericode, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast.
2: It was great. Thanks for having me.
0: Up next, web application security is about more than spotting vulnerabilities in code. Once those applications are deployed, they need to be protected against all manner of attacks. That's where our next guest comes in. Brendan Macareg is the Senior Director of Product Marketing at the firm Signal Sciences, a next-generation web application firewall and RASP, or Runtime Application Self-Protection technology vendor. In this conversation, Brendan and I talk about the changing landscape of web application protection, including the growing risks posed by insecure web application APIs, and how growth in the Internet of Things is compounding web application security risk.
1: Brendan McRig, uh, I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing for Signal Sciences. Signal Sciences is a next-gen WAF and RASP solution provider. And what that means is we give companies the ability to inspect the web requests that are coming in towards their application and API endpoints and really get the, the context that they need around those web requests so that they know uh, we, we enable them to automatically block the bad requests. And we do that with what's something called Smart Parse, which is our technology that works in line as proprietary technology that basically looks at how the web request um, would execute against the application should that payload reach the application or the API endpoint. And basically with that visual visual, uh, visibility into the web request, we can make a smart decision very quickly to either block it or let the request through. And that enables us to really keep false positives low and nearly non-existent for our customers. So they know that when we alert them on something, it's really an indicator or a signal that they need to pay attention to. And then something else that we're able to offer our customers is NLX, which is Network Learning Exchange. So when one of our customers gets a web request, That is malicious against one of their web layer assets we take that context and we apply it to all of our customer base so all of our customers get the benefit of that shared uh, web context and then the last part of our solution i like to call it is the finished outputs and that includes our management console where we visualize very easily and quickly uh, in a way that's very easy to understand you know how many web requests are your apps and apis getting over x time frame What's the origin? What, what were the, the web requests trying to access on the web server? Was it a certain directory? Were they looking for a backdoor file? What other things were they trying to do? And we really upload that information very quickly in a way that's easy for customers to understand. Also, we really empowered the DevOps and development teams because we have integrations with DevOps tools like Slack, Jira, PagerDuty, uh, Microsoft Teams, basically the major DevOps tools that teams use to communicate with one another. And get that actual information. We basically empower all the different teams—from the developers to the operations to security teams—to share and have a baseline of information to make security decisions from.
0: You know, as we're shifting, as not we, I mean, as the technology environment, as the business environment is really shifting rapidly to cloud-based services and and really yeah. moving and embracing this kind of DevOps. Uh, approach to application development, deployment, and so on. APIs really are increasingly how uh, organizations are creating access to their to their technology and and working with third parties and customers to you know open their platforms. That has created a potentially new avenue for attack, and I think we are seeing a lot of interest on. Part of malicious actors and gaming and exploiting API weaknesses to gain privileged access or access to sensitive and protected data. Signal Sciences, obviously, you're in the job business of protecting access to um, web-based applications, monitoring malicious and suspicious traffic. What, do, what are you doing on API security, and, and what what trends do you guys see on that front?
1: Yeah, so absolutely, APIs are obviously you know the backbone of connecting organizations, one organization's data to another when they want to exchange Damn. that information, and organizations also publish publish information out publicly that they want to be out there. But the flip side obviously is that when you have a resource like an API uh, exposed, it makes it open to attackers wanting to abuse it. And um, OWASP has a, uh, the open web application security project. They have an API security project where they are naming now the top 10 um,
0: vulnerable, vulnerable APIs or yeah.
1: And how they can be manipulated um, and attacked everything from broken authentication to um, security, misconfigurations configurations to an injection. And so what we like to tell uh, customers to look out for is brute force. Attackers are often going to find a critical API service and then they, they'll, they'll try to overwhelm it with requests. And the goal is to break the application. So the legitimate users can no longer access that critical resource. Now mm-hmm. this goes back to you know, why would that would happen? It goes, comes down to attacker objectives. If they want to take off a service offline for malicious reasons, uh, the other more subtle ways attackers look to use APIs to their own ends includes you know, stealing data by sending requests that appear to le- be legitimate. And what the, what the attacker is trying to do is figure out, okay, if I pass certain values or certain, maybe even certain commands, am I going to be able to get access to sensitive data um, or sensitive customer records? And an example of this would be, and this is, by the way, a public um, example. They're not a, cust- not a customer of ours, but... Uh, Back in 2017, Panera Bread, they allowed access to customer records and they did it uh, because they they set up their API in a way that was flawed. They recorded customer records sequentially, which allowed an automated bot to basically scrape initially what what they thought was 7 million customer records from the site. Later, it turned out to be 37 million records.
0: Right. You want the uh, integration, you want the rapid iteration development, but there also needs to be... Uh, a feedback loop on security so that that window of vulnerability is, is closed pretty quick if it, if it opens. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And NPI's security is not going to go away as a concern anytime soon, because obviously, as I mentioned before, it's, it's the backbone of the modern web in a lot of ways, because that's how uh, information gets the interchange between different web applications. So.
0: So like I said, you know, we're coming up in a holiday season. obviously every holiday season is a bolus, an injection of new connected devices into homes and businesses, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly, right? Shadow IT is a big problem. You know, Signal Sciences works with a lot of prominent um, connected device makers securing, by and large, their their back-end management. What do you have to say about the state of uh, connected device security, IoT security? Um, It seems for every company that's out there you know using a using a service like signal sciences there are a lot that are kind of doing it on a wing and a prayer and maybe hoping that nobody notices or by the time they notice they've they've already sold the product
1: yeah so the the world of iot and connected devices obviously provides convenience it provides services that are valuable to consumers you know obviously connected doorbells garage doors uh windows that can be open and closed or doors that can be unlocked and on you know locked and unlocked and um Consumers obviously want a system that works together well, that provides them the convenience of being able to control that system remotely. You know, I used to have a coworker who, when we went on business trips, he would, you know, love to brag about, "Look, I, Brendan, I can see my garage door. I can open it remotely. I'm here halfway around the world, but in, you know, in the Bay Area, I can open my door for my wife if she gets locked mm-hmm. out. That's fantastic." Well, here's the thing. Here's the danger. Or the the security risk is that in many of these IoT device sellers to consumers, there's usually some kind of web interface to uh, either set up the account security mechanisms in terms of, again, associated email address, cell phone numbers to authenticate users when necessary, and then there's also the administrative portion of how you admin or administer and control the devices for that um, IoT vendor, and. You know, Obviously, you don't want someone doing an account takeover, taking over a consumer's account, and then changing the security settings that allows them basically to lock the customer, the legitimate customer out. But also, then they can do nefarious things like unlock the doors, obviously, or set the, the code or other authentication method, method associated with the ability to do that um, if necessary. So while there's all this convenience that is available to consumers, there's the flip side of, yes, but there's... Uh, security concerns, just like any other organization that has customer-facing web apps or APIs, must to deal with. So again, th- there's competing interests in terms of what consumers want and need. These cu- as these companies scale up, they want to serve massive numbers of customers, and so they need to basically have a lot of the same you know, web app security needs as other uh, vendors do in terms of you know being able to defend. And protect those production applications that allow customers to log in and and administer the garage doors, the windows, whatever the smart devices, the lights in their home. You don't want to have someone unauthorized controlling those devices, obviously. What we do at Signal Sciences, and we do have some IoT device selling customers, is we allow them to do the same detection and prevention of uh, account abuse in terms of account takeover of inspecting APIs to make sure that the requests are not passing illegitimate values, they want faster detection and response times, and really do that at scale and not be a blocker again, so that they can still run their business, they can let the legitimate users in, manage their devices and and keep the bad uh, malicious requests out. So in a lot of ways, the, the use cases are the same for these IoT vendors, but they obviously there's pretty wide implications in terms of, yeah, you don't want malicious actors controlling these devices. You know, it, the, 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 the convenience is a panacea for consumers, but for the IoT vendors who make these devices, it's it's going to be an ongoing um, evolution of their security practices. Obviously, getting the visibility that we provide is important, but it's it's going to be, uh, as, as these services evolve, we'll, we'll be there as well to help them, you know, maintain them at scale and, and really instrument and observe the, the web requests on the API endpoints that power these devices and whatnot. So we're
0: Brendan McEreg of Signal Sciences. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast.
1: Hey, Paul, this is uh, really good, and I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.
0: You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast was brought to you by Signal Sciences. Signal Sciences' next-generation WAF and RASP technology is the only application security solution that works across any architecture. Fast and easy to implement, the solution protects more than 25,000 cloud native, legacy, and serverless applications and over a trillion production requests every month. Organizations across all industries deploy Signal Sciences to protect their most important web applications, APIs, and microservices against the full spectrum of threats, from the OWASP top 10 to account takeovers, API misuse, and bad bots. Check them out at signalsciences.com.